0: Okay, welcome everyone to Milk and Meat in our Friday night live stream here on Kingdom and Context. We thank you for joining us. I'm Sean Griffin, and tonight we have a fun topic. We're going to be talking about the bad guys and some of the work that they've been putting in to try to hide the good guys. So, thank you for joining us. This is going to be a lot of fun. I want to say hi to some of the folks in the chat. Um, Mr. David Shears is here. Thank you, sir. Welcome. Um, Tim, with the Russian last name. Don't know how to say it. Welcome back. Catherine Lodge, welcome. Chauncey Lump, welcome. Liam Yahweh Akkad, welcome. Sky the Dumb Watcher, welcome. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Jubion Kenobi, welcome. Daughter714, welcome. West Play's Music is here. Welcome, welcome. Just want to say Shabbat Shalom to everyone that is observing the Sabbath. Uh, Hanging on His Words is here. Welcome. Good to see you, brother. Yah's Daughter, welcome. Arterius, I think I said that right. Welcome. Blue Doves, welcome. Hope everyone's Mr. Clayton Linhart. Welcome. All right. Laura Cope, sh- shalom. Miss Vicki lot shabbat shalom. Grace style shalom to you. Psalm 119 is what here. Welcome. Shabbat shalom. Thanks for joining us. Bill Alsbrook, shalom. All right, guys. Let's see. Let's see here. Uh, I think I said hi to everybody that I can see so far. Well, I'm excited to get into this tonight. I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm I'm super excited. This is going to be um, this is going to be a really fun episode because we get to dig into uh, we get to dig into some of the history. Um, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we looked at some of the history immediately after the days of the apostles at the end of John. the apostle John about the end of his lifespan into some of that generation right after John and what they thought about the Torah, what they thought about the apostle Paul, uh, their perspective. And tonight we're going to jump into some of that as well, because uh, we're going to mention two people tonight, both Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. Now, Irenaeus, um, as we're going to read from his quotes, he definitely was someone that um, promoted as a disciple of Yeshua, promoted keeping the commandments of God and walking them out as he says that was what was passed down to him by the elders uh, and the apostles the other guy justin martyr he's considered an apologist and a philosopher now i don't take doctrine from this guy but i definitely think that he has a historical perspective as he relays the events going on during his lifetime that we can benefit from because it's going to show us what they were all dealing with with persecution as well as with the religious leaders of the jews which we know as the pharisees what they were doing during the days of the second century um, that was literally trying to hide yeshua in scripture and guys some of the stuff that i've stumbled upon is mind-blowing it blew my mind so i thought hey i want to share it with everyone else because hopefully you can take these after we're done tonight you can take these these apology these ideas that I'm going to show tonight to show the the scriptures where they are, how to find them. Um, as always, guys, if you just if you don't uh, want to copy what I've done in your own, all you got to do is just go to our Patreon. You can download the slides I've already prepared, and um, I always upload them after the shows, so you can have them to pass around as a resource to show people. If you're trying to, you know, if you have some people that are slipping away from the faith, or people that are being swayed by really bad arguments about concepts of the faith or if you're trying to do Torah apologetics and you're trying to show other believers that the, the commandments were taught by the disciples it was taught by the disciples after those disciples and um and then there was a moment where some confusion started mixing in at the end of the second century that's some of the stuff we're going to go over tonight and why that confusion set in and how it set in literally with what was available to them for them to resource the scriptures and to read and understand what is sound doctrine so um Hopefully tonight, the things I'm going to present to you, you can then take yourself and you can show people, look, here's direct evidence that we had these first few generations after Yeshua were doing the best they could to keep the teachings of Yeshua, which was to follow the way, to follow the commandments of God, to walk it out in love. But they were being uh, oppressed and attacked and persecuted on all fronts, not just physically, uh, not just financially, but also theologically. And just like we saw in the days of Yeshua, we have this roving band of wolves, right? These Pharisees, these brood of vipers, as Yeshua called them, these liars, as he calls them in Matthew 23. Men that decided unabashedly that if you believe Yeshua is the Christ, you cannot, you're, you're kicked out of the synagogues, right? We know this from uh, John 9, 22. But what we're going to see is, Even with the Old Testament scriptures that all the new believers would have had, because remember, the New Testament wasn't compiled yet. So even with those Old Testament scriptures, I'm going to show evidence tonight. The Pharisees immediately started putting their hand into the Old Testament scriptures to shade, hide, and in some cases outright erase prophecy that blatantly spoke about the Son of God. And not just in his fulfillment and his earthly ministry as he walked around in Judea, but also what was spoken of him before he was incarnate. And what he was destined to do, what was spoken of him and fulfilled in his life, death, resurrection, ascension to the Father the right hand as our high priest. We're going to go over some of these great prophecies, guys. So I hope it's a great encouragement to you tonight. Um, the Blood Saves is here. Welcome. Kingdom Truth is here. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. It uh, looks like Joe Decker. Welcome. Good to see you. David Ward. Welcome. All right. I'm going to jump right into it, guys. We have a lot of fun stuff to cover. So let's look at. Uh, Some of these slides I'm going to screen share for you. All right, the first thing I just want to review is a prophecy. Everything I'm going to explain to you guys tonight was already prophesied by none other than Enoch himself. And you're going to, at the end of this, you're going to see why I included this verse at the very front of this presentation tonight. First Enoch 10410. and now I know this mystery that sinners will alter and pervert the words of righteousness in many ways and will speak wicked words and lie and practice great deceits and write books concerning their words. Enoch is telling you right here just he already knows what's going to happen in the future and they're going to pervert and alter the words of righteousness. I'm going to actually show you guys that literally tonight the altering and the perverting of those words Luke 24, 27, this is one of the greatest challenges many modern day apologists of the word and of Yeshua have, is this challenge here to do what Jesus did with his disciples in Luke 24. And it says here in verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Right there, you've got a gentleman that is the word made incarnate, right? You've got our Messiah, our Lord, Yeshua of Nazareth. He decides, I'm going to explain who I am and how I was described from the scriptures, starting with Moses and then the other prophets. And he does that during this walk from town to town with these two other disciples. And many people have said, Man, that's almost, that seems like it'd be impossible today with some of the scriptures that we have. Like how, you know, it would be very challenging because every time you try to bring some scriptures that we think speak about the Messiah, you would have someone. Like like the gentleman whom he's talking to, people that were raised in Judaism, even though they're his disciples, and he was weaning them them of that back doctrine, he would still have. In our modern day, other people that have heard things of Judaism and how now are reading, Old Testament texts that have been altered and perverted by Pharisees who later became the Masoretes, who then became the Masoretic text, who then it's it's an offshoot and a product of the Pharisees' actions, and we're going to review some of that stuff here in just a minute. Many people would have a, a really difficult time accomplishing what Jesus did here in this walk if we were to try this again today. But hopefully, after tonight's presentation, it won't be that difficult for you. So let's look again real quick, guys. This is some of the stuff we're going to talk about. And I know many of you may not have ever, ever heard these before because that's the point. They are hidden or removed. Moses says at some point, There shall not fail a prince from Judah, nor a leader from his loins, until he shall come for whom it remains. And he shall be the expectation of the Gentiles, also the nations. Uh, That's what the word Gentile means. Also, Isaiah says, he who is that entered into judgment with me, let him stand up against me. And who is it who is justified? Let him draw near to the Lord's son. You guys ever heard that before? You know what verse in Isaiah that's from? I bet you can't find it. Again, Isaiah says, behold, my son shall understand. And shall be exalted and glorified greatly, even as many as shall be astonished at you. So without glory shall your form be from men. Wow. A direct mention of the Son of God, spoken of by Yahweh, and speaking of him being in bodily form without glory. This is another quote from Isaiah. Anyone ever seen that in scripture? Another one's from Jeremiah. Blessed is he who was before he became man. Never read that before in Jeremiah, nor have I read it in Lamentations, which was also read by Jeremiah. Again, David says, before the morning star, I beget thee. It's, amaz- it's amazing, guys. We're going to go over just these plus about 10 or 12 more uh, examples of this concept here throughout this presentation. But real quick, let's get to a gentleman that I already mentioned a few weeks ago. We're going to go over him again tonight. He's the, uh, the Bishop of Lyons. His name was Iranius. Lyons was basically like South France. We used to be called Gaul back in the day, South France, Northern Spain today. And uh, he was in charge of, basically, he's the bishop, so he's trying to teach the new converts, you know, how to understand the Bible, give them a crash course on how they are to be discipled and how they are to obey the Lord Jesus in their new faith. So he says some really fascinating stuff here in this chapter. And he says, for such is the state of those who believe, since in them continually abides the Holy Spirit and was given by him in baptism. And he is retained by the receiver if he walks in truth and holiness and righteousness and patient endurance. Guys, there is no other definition of truth and holy and righteousness than the Torah. So this is what's explained to us all throughout the scriptures. We know this guy is explained Torah, and he already directly tells you to keep the commandments in other places, but this is a subtle nod. If you know what these words mean, you know that they're teaching Torah. For this soul has, been res- has a resurrection in them that believe, the body receiving the soul again, and along with it, by the power of the Holy Spirit being raised up and entering into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah, this guy's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is the fruit of the blessing of Japheth in the calling of the nations or the Gentiles made manifest through the church standing in readiness to receive its dwelling in the house of Shem, according to the promise of God, that all these things would come, would so come to pass. The spirit of God declared beforehand by the prophets that in respect of them, the faith of those who worship God in truth should be confirmed for what was an impossibility to our nature and therefore ready to cause credibility to mankind. This God caused to be known beforehand by the prophets in order that, through its having been foretold in times long before, and then at last finding effect in this way, even as it was foretold, we might know that it was God who thus proclaimed to us beforehand our redemption. It's a pretty powerful statement, right? So up here we see him preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in connection with the resurrection. It's amazing, all right? Next, we, this is where, you know, this gentleman knows sound doctrine. This is the message of Yeshua. This is the message of all, this, all the disciples. We also have another qualifier we see here he says standing in a readiness to receive its dwelling in the house of shem according to the promise of god where in the world have we read this <laughs> guys this is an idea the the specific language connecting the promises of god to the house of shem is only found in the book of jubilees chapter 19 17-18 abraham says unto rebecca my daughter watch over my son jacob for he shall be in my stead on the earth and for a blessing in the midst of the children of men And for the glory of the whole seed of Shem. Now, this is Abraham talking about his grandson, Jacob. And he's saying this to his daughter-in-law, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. And he's telling her about her son, which is Abraham's grandson. Watch over him. He's going to be a blessing in my stead. That's what he's actually getting the priesthood passed on to him. He'll be a glory of the whole seed of Shem. Okay, this is that type of language that we never see spoken of in Genesis um, and we never see it spoken of in any of the other prophetic books. This is why it's—I've been trying to show for a couple of years now on this channel that the Book of Jubilees was intentionally left out of the Hebrew canon um, about 200 to 100 BC because the Pharisees do not like what the Book of Jubilees says. It goes against a lot of the doctrine of Judaism, so that therefore they have to leave it out, and they have to leave people to be confused with what they have did choose to put in there. So. Again, the Book of Jubilees is being taught by this guy Irenaeus. Now, at the very bottom, he says, "For what an impossibility to our nature, and therefore ready to cause incredibility to mankind." Right? This moment here, where he's saying, "For what was an impossibility to our nature, and therefore ready to cause incredibility to mankind," is him speaking of the resurrection of the of the Son, coming from live, being preexistent with the Father, from heaven to being born of a woman into the body of a man that would seem incredible, incredulous, right? That that just couldn't happen. This is exactly what uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16 calls a great mystery of godliness. And it says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's the process that was prophesied of him, and we're gonna go over some of these prophecies right now that Paul is trying to explain. He comes from above, right? Comes down, born of a woman. Lives his life, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up in glory. His ascension after he's resurrected—it's the whole process that's considered a mystery of godliness. It's an amazing concept. Irenaeus is teaching the same thing. Now here we have Justin Martyr in the second century, and he's actually making a bold statement. We're going to dig into towards the end of this presentation, so stick with us. But he's making a, a really interesting statement. Where he's telling a, another Jewish gentleman that he's having a conversation with in this book that he doesn't, he knows the Jewish religious leaders, that's the Pharisees, that they do not like the translate, the Greek translations of the Bibles that they had in their first and second century time period. He says in this quote, but I am far from putting reliance in your teachers, that's the Pharisees, who refuse to admit that the interpretation made by the 70 elders who are with Ptolemy, king of the Egyptians, is a correct one. And they attempt to frame another. So in the days of the second century, it's actually about 70 years after they started this attempt to frame another. What does this mean? He doesn't like the translation of the Septuagint that was created about 260 B.C., about 300 years before he's making the statement, which was the dominant version of the scriptures that most everyone in Judea and all the surrounding nations read was from the Greek translation. It was one that was passed around the most. And he knew the Pharisees didn't like it because it proved Yeshua, after Yeshua came and lived and did all of his stuff, he had fulfilled so much of the scriptures that they were trying to instantly to change the scriptures and they didn't like it. So they attempted to frame another. We're actually gonna go into what that looks like. Now, just as a quick recap, if you've never seen this channel before, if this is your first time hearing us talk about the Septuagint, um, it's approximately uh, 260 BC, as I talked about before. Um, the king of Egypt at the time, one of the Ptolemies, he actually commissioned about 70 scholars who came in. That's where we we'll get the word Septuagint means 70 in the Latin. And he came in and he asked these 70 Hebrew scholars to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Koinonia Greek. And that's, you know, along, you know, with their apocryphals well, their deuterocanonical books, all the, all the books that they had available at the time. And this happened over a course of time. It, the initial phase, as far as Research from history tells you that it was just the Torah, those first five books, but then they went on to do the other prophets and the other writings as well, um, so that everyone had these in the Greek to read because it was a dominant language of the day, especially around the Mediterranean. And so this was happening about the third century BCE, and unfortunately, many of those original texts did not survive. We only have fragments left today. The remaining books were translated over the next 100 to 200 years into the Greek as well. Now, in the course of the second century, and these are the, this is the discourse I just read from you from both Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. These two dudes lived in the second century. Irenaeus was born about AD 65 and he died about AD 160. Justin Martyr was born about AD 100 and he died about AD 165. So he he lived a lot shorter lifespan than Irenaeus and uh, he was actually per- murdered. He was a uh, martyred, he was persecuted and martyred. Um, And then Irenaeus, uh, they both were in this time frame right after the initial disciples died, okay? And so Justin Martyr, in my opinion, if you read all of his writings, he needed um, a lot more discipling, to be honest with you. He's a big talker, but I'm thankful for him being a big talker because while he's doing his big talking, he reveals... Information about the history of the time that they were going through, and what was happening. Even though I don't like his interpretations of doctrine or what he claims to understand from the scriptures, which I would love to have a conversation with him today to be like, well, that's, you know, I can I can show you where you're taking extreme liberties with the with the ideas about four or five places right there. But Irenaeus, on the other hand, much more conservative, much more Torah-based, much more um, just grounded in the fundamentals and not trying to do a whole bunch of advanced interpretation or anything like that. So both these guys in the same generation live in two different countries, and they had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at their availability. Um, Now, what Justin Martyr said earlier, if you guys remember, he says he's talking to this Jewish gentleman, and he's saying, I know that your leaders don't like the Septuagint, and they're attempting to frame another, right? They didn't like the translation. And so they were going to try to make a new translation. So they commissioned to have their own translation made. And it's this, what we call the first of the Greek versions of the Old Testament, was executed in the second century in that of a, a guy named Aquila. He is described as a Jew or a Jewish proselyte of Pontus. And the date commonly attributed to his version is about the year 8126. His translation is said to be an executed for the express purpose of opposing the authority of the Septuagint. His version was in consequence upheld by the Jews. Okay, so they they basically said, we don't like the Septuagint, we're going to make our own. We know everyone wants to read it in Greek, so that's fine. We'll We'll make a Greek version of the Old Testament, but we're going to make our own translation. Now, modern scholars will look at this, and I'll just keep reading. It says, his labor was evidently directed in the opposing passages, which the Christians were accustomed to cite from the Septuagint as applicable to the Lord Jesus. The general characteristic of this version is boldly, literarily, of rendering such an endeavor is is made to render each hebrew word and particle into greek that all grammar is often set at defiance and not unfrequently the sense is altogether sacrificed this is a scholar's interpretation saying it's a bad translation guys from the scrupulosity of aquila in rendering each hebrew word his work if we possessed it complete and not merely in fragments would be of great value in textual criticism because they could see how you would if you had the original septuagint plus his work you could see um just where he put in his, you know, his insertions of his own ideas, or he rephrased things, and that's what's interesting. So, what's, what I want to point out here, okay, is this idea that this translation, its whole purpose was commissioned to go against the modern translation that had been around for like 300 years of the Greek Septuagint, specifically about passages pertaining to the Lord Jesus. And as you see at the very bottom here, um, I included another uh, another sentence here that just explains for my research that modern scholars, they considered Aquila's Greek version to have been translated with a sense of barbarism, meaning that the passages pertaining to Jesus were reworded. So that's amazing. All right. That's the in the 126 AD, the second century. That's the first new version of the Greek Septuagint in about 300 years that the Pharisees had made specifically. Here's the second one of the Greek versions was by a Greek translator as a subsequent period in the second century named Symmachus. He is described as an Ebionite, a kind of partial Christian. The reason why it's called a semi-Christian is if anyone does not understand, most Ebionites are attributed to not believing in the divinity of Yeshua. They don't believe that he was made of the virgin birth. Uh, They only use the Hebrew gospel of Matthew. Uh, They reject Paul as an apostle. And uh, um, they only take like certain chapters from James, but they don't take the whole book of James. Basically, they just, they pick and choose whatever they want. Um, they were an offshoot and considered partially Christian, which is pretty funny. Um, but it says that this guy's version is considered by some scholars to have been executed in good and pure Koine Greek, because this guy was a Greek speaker to begin with. And so therefore, he seemed to have a really good translation of the Old Testament scriptures. Unfortunately, his translation is lost to history, and people don't use it. Let's look at the third version that arises in the second century, and it's by a guy named Theodosian. He's also an Ebionite like Symmachus, to whom he was probably an anterior, meaning he's an acquaintance, but his version is in many parts based on the Septuagint. And modern scholars claim he was less servile in his adherence to the words of the Hebrew than Aquila, the first guy. Although he is void of the freedom of Symmachus, his knowledge of Hebrew was certainly limited. And without the Septuagint, it's hardly probable that he could even undertake this version. Long story short, they're saying that some of his writings or the way he translated it from what they do have as fragments from the Septuagint compared to the, the fragments they have left of this guy, they seem to think that he wasn't that great at the Greek, and especially with translations, and he basically did not, what it means by he was less servile in his adherence to the words of the Hebrew, meaning that he basically was not the best translator. I'm just going to say it. He basically was not the best translator. But yet one of his translations in the book of Daniel was eventually used by the Pharisees later on, as they were compiling the Mesoretic, uh, the Mesoretic version in about 900 AD. The point is, we've got now, by the end of the second century, guys, we've got four, four different versions of the Greek Septuagint. The original and three copies that are, you know, they're, they're all called into question. The second one seems great, but who knows where it went, right? But the first and the third one, they're, they're very suspect, okay? So in the days of Justin Martyr, this guy is claiming that he himself has seen two different versions of the Septuagint in his lifetime. Remember, this guy lived in the, in the heat of 100 to 165 AD, right when all these new Septuagint were being created. Uh, these new translations were being published. And he says this. He says, "But I am far, but I am far from putting reliance on your teachers who refuse to admit that the interpretation might be the 70 elders who were with Ptolemy, the King of the Egyptians is a correct one. And they attempt to frame another. And I wish to observe that they have altogether taken away many scriptures from the translations affected by those 70 elders who were with Ptolemy. And by which this very man who was crucified is proved to have been set forth expressly by God and a man and as being crucified and is dying. But since I'm aware that this is denied by all your nation... I do not address myself to these points, but I proceed to carry on my discussions by means of those passages which are still admitted by you. For you assent to those which I have brought before your attention, except that you contradict the statement, behold, the virgin shall conceive. And you say it ought to be read, behold, the young woman shall conceive." By the way, he's talking about Isaiah 7, right? The famous concept, right? The original translation in the Greek was the virgin shall conceive, which sounds incredulous, right? It sounds incredible as Irenaeus talked about initially. How could this happen? How can a virgin conceive? How can the Son of God, who is already existent, be put into the body of a man? Um, but the Pharisees, it immediately changed Isaiah 7 to read, Behold, the young woman shall conceive, or the young maiden. He says, And I promised to prove that the prophecy referred not as you were taught to Hezekiah, but to this Christ of mine. And now I shall go to the proof. And here Trifle remarked, this is the gentleman he's talking to, the Jewish gentleman. He says, we asked you, first of all, to tell us of some of the scriptures which you allege have been completely canceled. And Justin goes on to explain it. And he says, I shall do as you please from the statements then which Ezra's, this is the high priest Ezra guys, the statement which then Ezra's made in reference to the law of the Passover, they have taken away the following. So he's about to tell you right here of a statement that he had read from Ezra that was no longer in the new Septuagint that he also had read. And it says this, and Ezra said to the people, This Passover is our Savior and our refuge. And if you have understood and your heart has taken it in, that we shall humble him on a standard, and thereafter hope in him. And then this place shall not be forsaken forever, says the God of hosts. But if you will not believe in him and will not listen to his declaration, you shall be a laughing stock to the nations. Man, gosh, that's amazing. It's amazing. He's literally telling you, we've got the savior, this Passover, this is what we've talked about in Kingdom in Context for two years, right? The Passover is a huge event of our salvation on the day of the Lord when Yeshua returns. And he's telling you right here that that person, Yeshua, is going to be humbled on a standard. That's him put on the cross. And they're afterward in him. And that's that's what happens when he's resurrected, right? He's exemplified the resurrection promise of the covenant. And then he's made the high priest who can resurrect us in the future. That's why we hope in him, right? And he's he's warning them. And if you guys don't believe his declarations of who he is, It'll be a laughing stock to the nations. This is what happens through their judgment in AD 70 because the generation of his day, you know, rejected him. The religious leaders and, and a majority of the people rejected him. So, this is why he talks about in Matthew 23 um, you know, certain cities that he had visited, it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of a judgment than, say, Capernaum, right? Because they literally had God in the flesh doing all the beautiful behavior of the kingdom right in front of them, free of charge. And they still rejected him. Right. And that's super sad. And that's, um, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected principle that he's he's uh, teaching from. And they did not believe he was who he is, which is why it says in John 8, you will die in your sins. If you do not believe I am he, who's he, the Messiah that was destined to come. The one that Ezra is talking about right here. We're going to go on to some other ones as well. So let's um, before we go into the next phase of this, where I actually start breaking down some of the scriptures and showing you how the prophecies were hidden. Um, I just want to check the chat real quick and see if there, if anyone has any uh, immediate questions. Um, looks like we have a, a super chat. Thank you, Miss Marsha. I appreciate it. Uh, Shabbat Shalom to you. Hope you're having a good night. And then uh, thank you, admins, for being in here. Uh, Miss Blue Doves is here. Welcome. Uh, let me see here. Miss Donna Sless is here. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. Pat Caldwell, Shalom. Welcome. Uh, Lion's Wings, welcome. All right, guys. Um, Israel of South Florida, Shabbat Shalom and welcome. Thanks for being here. So guys, if you have any questions as we go through this, put them all caps and then our admins, uh, please try to make note of them and then send them to me and I can get to them at the Q&A here that we'll do at the end of the presentation. But I'm going to jump right back into um, the presentation because I want us to get through this. We've got uh, some amazing stuff to talk about. Like I said before, Irenaeus of Lyons, he's a Greek bishop. That means he speaks Greek. And he was uh, the Bishop of uh, Southern France and Northern Spain, which is circled in red right here. As you can see the Mediterranean on the far right hand side of this map, that's where Israel is. And he's over there in France, Spain area. And he was in the second century helping believers. And this is a book that he wrote, that he well was compiled with many of his writings. And this was him basically giving new believers a crash course in the Bible, what to understand as a matter of first importance. And um, here's some of the examples of things that he quoted accurately, okay? So the reason I'm putting this on the screen guys is because in anything you wanna do a test as far as a baseline standard, right? So if, you, if you're if you talking to someone and you wanna know like if they're crazy or you don't know what they're, you know, if they know what they're talking about, you give them some easy questions or you, you validate their knowledge of a subject by them answering questions correctly first. And then you might jump into some more complicated stuff, right? That way you don't waste your time asking someone something that's way above their head or outside of their knowledge base. So we're going to go over a few quick examples of Irenaeus who's quoting scripture accurately within his letter. So we know that he knows what he's talking about. He's the bishop teaching new believers. He better know what he's talking about because it's a grave responsibility. So let's look what he says right here. And one of his statements in his letter, he says, now that we may not suffer out of this kind, we must needs hold the rule of the faith without deviation and do the commandments of God. Oh, Praise the Lord. He's teaching Torah, believing in God and fearing him as Lord and loving him as father. Oh, that sounds amazing. Now this doing is produced by faith for Isaiah says, if you believe not, neither shall you understand. And faith is produced by the truth for faith rests on things that truly are. All right. So now he's trying to explain to them how you're going to do the commandments, right? As a part of your discipleship is produced is that faith is produced by truth. So the truth is in you, your faith leads you to obedience face faith, faith rests on things that truly are. So he's basically just giving them a practical command and then backing it up with some ideology of understanding for them to understand why they do the practical command, because they've already come to faith in Christ. We see the same thing that he quotes from Isaiah accurately quoted both in the Septuagint and in the Masoretic, which is what we would consider modern translations today, like the KJV. So guys, just in case you didn't know, if you go to a, um, a a software, like any Bible site that has multiple translations of the Bible, most of those translations are built upon the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew rabbinical Talmudic rabbinical texts of about the ninth to the 10th century AD. So those are the Pharisees who concocted their, took their own Hebrew and made their own text. That's why it looks so different from the Septuagint. And this was after I just read to you in the second century they had tried to make their own Septuagint because they knew that's what people read the most but then over time about 800 years later they started getting back into the hebrew and they had time to work with the hebrew text and then they promoted that that then got picked up by you know the catholic church who also then um who was using the latin which was based off the Septuagint that's what they called the Dewey Reims so you got in our modern translations today you got two predominantly um well-known translations called the Brenton Septuagint translation from the from the Greek into English and then you got the Dewey Reams which based a lot of off Drum's Latin Vulgate which was based off the Septuagint so but the thing that we don't know was it based off the Aquila Septuagint that the Pharisees had commissioned or from the original that's the big question in history but either way there's some differences between the modern day Masoretic, which is what we most would call the KJV in the 1500s, and the original Septuagint from 2300 years ago. But in this moment here, we see Irenaeus quoting accurately from Isaiah 7-9 in both different—whatever point in history you want to look at the translation, he's quoting it accurately. Okay, so here's another example in part two. he says another statement in his letter, the spirit of God, he says, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the godliness, and the spirit of the fear of God shall fill him. So this is something that we actually only see. We see it very closely quoted in the Mesoretic, but if you look in the middle of the Septuagint, it's quoted closer to the original quote. And that would make sense, because as we just read from Justin Martyr, his generation, they had Septuagints available. They didn't have Hebrew Mesoretics available. Okay, so he's accurately quoting the scripture. He knows what he's talking about so far. Let's look at another quick example. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from her husband. this is him talking about Genesis 3 account. Or she's in Genesis 2, I guess, um, as I meant to say, when Eve was pulled from Adam, we see this is a direct word-for-word quotation from the Septuagint and not from the Mesoretic. Okay, so he's definitely quoting scripture properly, but he's definitely quoting the Septuagint. Another fourth quick example is it says, Their sound went out into all the earth, their words to me and the world. This is Psalm 19.4, and it's closer to the Septuagint than it is the actual Masoretic. So, again, this guy, when he's quoting Scripture in his letter, he's quoting it accurately. That's going to be important for you to understand because we're going to get into some stuff later that he quotes that we just cannot find in Scripture. We're going to get to some other stuff right now that he quotes that we can find in Scripture, but it depends on where which translations you're looking at. So let's look at those hidden prophecies, guys. Here's the first example. Irenaeus quotes in his letter, Before the morning star I beget you. That's amazing. This is truly amazing. He attributes this both to David and to Jeremiah. So it's assumed that Jeremiah was quoting David, which I can't find this in in Jeremiah anywhere. Um, But you can find this in the Septuagint quoted by David in Psalm 110. And it's both in the Breton Septuagint and also the Dewey Rehm Septuagint translation or Latin Vulgate Greek translation. It's in Psalm 110.3, guys. And if you look in the Masoretic below, it doesn't say anything like that. It's a totally different rendering. Guys, Psalm 110, we, we've talked about this uh, passage so much here on, on Kingdom of Context, It's especially the first four verses, right? The Lord said to my Lord, right? That that big controversial phrase. You, you guys may have remember the debate that I did with the um, the rabbi, the Orthodox rabbi guy, um, Asher, who was basically, I mentioned Psalm 110 to him. He's like, Oh, that's talking about David. I was like, Really? Because it says, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And they're like, Yeah, yeah, it's talking about David. But here, if we had this translation, they couldn't make that claim. What does it say in verse 3? For the womb of the dawn, before the day star, I begot thee. That's not David. <laughs> and of course, we know that verses 1, 2, and 4 are not David either, right? So he's talking about Yeshua, uh, who's made the, the Melchizedek, the high priest, forever. So, But even more so, we've got a direct mention of the creation of the person it's talking about that gives us more context to fully understand. It can't be talking about Hezekiah or David. It's talking about Yeshua, who's before the morning star, before the first stars are created, before the creation, he existed. Right, and he was begotten by the Father. We've, you guys may remember the Trinitarian debate I did um, a few months back with Caleb, where we went over this emphatically. This moment of was you, when did Yeshua come into being? And I, he and I both agreed. This is a gentleman from uh, Messiah Matters, and he and I both agreed that Yeshua was existent with the Father before the whole world was created. But he didn't think Yeshua was ever begotten. He was never created. But yet, boom! Right here, Psalm one ten three. He's begotten before the day star He's begotten already. So it literally is telling you, it's amazing. He comes from the father and he's the son. That's why the father existed first. He begot his son. That's how father and son works. And we have literal words telling us that. No mincing of words. Example number two, Irenaeus claims, Jeremiah said this statement, blessed is he who was before he became man. So it's another pre-incarnate reference. And this cannot be found in the Septuagint or the Masoretic in the book of Jeremiah. But you can find it in Enoch. And it's not the exact word for word, but it's the same concept that's being exemplified in the book of Enoch 48, two through six, where it says, Yea, before the sun and the signs are created, before the stars of the heavens were made, his name was named before the Lord of Spirits. He shall be a staff to the righteous whereon on to stay themselves and not fall. He shall be a light for the Gentiles. Guys, doesn't that sound like Isaiah 42? In the hope of those who are troubled of heart. H- Amen, that's our Messiah that's our Lord. And he's being prophesied in Enoch 48 as being incarnate before anything was made and being blessed to the Lord, right? Which says his name was named before the Lord of Spirits. That word we've tried to emphatically express to folks, guys, that's not literally always talking about his physical name like Yeshua, right? Or like John or Matthew, but his name, his authority. His authority was named before the Lord of Spirits, before the sun, moon, and stars were created. And then it goes on to give you greater qualifiers to ensure that you know it's the messiah what did jesus tell Pilate in john chapter 18 you are right to say that i'm a king my kingdom is not of this world to have a name is to have authority and he was given that authority as the king of heaven before he became incarnate in the flesh but he's also still the son of yahweh the creator the almighty and they share that authority so now he has all authority in heaven and earth as a result of what he did by becoming an incarnate man and being obedient to death to receive his high priest position. So he's got even greater authority than just being the king of heaven. And this is why he'll rule all of heaven and earth in the father's stead um, and the father's authority in the future. So here is an amazing part where Jeremiah mentions an ideological theological concept that we don't find mentioned in the, the Masoretic or the Septuagint directly in the Old Testament, especially not in Jeremiah. We see it in the book of Enoch. It's amazing. Example chapter three. Excuse me. Example number three. Here in a chapter in Isaiah, Irenaeus, he claims Isaiah said this, And now thus says the Lord, who formed me as his servant from the womb, to gather Jacob and to gather Israel unto him. I shall be glorified before the Lord, and my God shall be a strength to me. And he said a great thing shall it be to you to be called my servant to establish and confirm the tribe of Jacob to turn again the dispersion of Israel and I've sent you for a light of the Gentiles that you should be for salvation unto the end of the earth many of you guys may recognize this package this is Isaiah 49 5 through 6 but do we see this in the Septuagint or do we see it in the Masoretic we see it in both and it's worded slightly different in in, uh, in the Masoretic but in the Septuagint's Look at this look at the part that's highlighted in red we have an additional phrase in here this is i've given you for the covenant of a race so what does this tell us which which translation of the septuagint that we already talked about during the days of irenaeus there was four that they had available to them four different translations and scholars have already agreed that they are not completely all the same but here is more qualifiers that the Masoretic intentionally would have left out of the surviving Septuagint that we do have. And it seems as if that translation was not the one that Irenaeus was directly quoting for. Even though there's plenty of references to Yeshua in here, it seems that he, whatever, just like Justin Martyr said, he's he's had a translation of Septuagint, and the new translation you saw had pieces removed from it, right? So he, he was watching in real time the Pharisees try to edit out Yeshua, So here we have a translation in the Septuagint that actually Irenaeus himself, who's a few countries over, may have had a different Septuagint. Interesting stuff, huh guys? Example four, this is also attributed to Moses by Irenaeus. And he says, there shall not fail a prince from Judah, nor a leader from his loins until he shall come from whom it remains. And he shall be the expectation of the nations, or or the Gentiles, washed in his robe and wine, and his garment in the blood of grapes. This is in Genesis 49, 10 and 11. And this is most clearly aligned with the Septuagint and not the Masoretic. Guys, this is a prophecy of Jacob being repeated by Moses that we don't even get in the, in the book of Jubilees. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. The Masoretic, you can't even make, it's not even close to the same thing. It says the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet instead of nor a prince from his loins. It's a totally different concept. And then it says, "Until Shiloh comes." Well, that doesn't say. People have questioned for years what what is the world? They assume that it's a, like an idiomatic reference to Yeshua. They've assumed that, but if you look at the Septuagint translation, which is what Irenaeus is quoting, we don't have to assume that. It literally tells you, "Until there comes the thing stored up for him, and he is the expectation of the nations." And that's a prophecy that lines up with Enoch and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Zechariah. You know what I mean? This is—it's easy. It's much easier when you don't have (laughs) the Pharisees meddling with these words. Let's look at example number five. This is Irenaeus quoting Jeremiah, and he's actually pulling from the book of Baruch, but he calls it Jeremiah. Now, in case you guys are not aware, in Jeremiah chapter 35, it mentions Baruch. Baruch was a scribe and a priest, and he was an assistant to Jeremiah. Many people think that he actually wrote all of Jeremiah's words, both uh, the book of Jeremiah and limitations, because he was the guy that was the scribe. He literally wrote down the stuff for the prophet. And he has his own books, Baruch 1 and 2, um, or I should say, you know, Baruch and then the Apocalypse of Baruch. So here is Irenaeus quoting something we see directly word for word in the book of Baruch chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. It says, this is our God. There shall none other be accounted of in a comparison with him. He has found out every way by knowledge and has given it unto Jacob his servant and to Israel that is beloved of him. Afterward did he appear upon the earth and was conversant with men. This is the book of the commandments of God and of the law which endures forever. All they that hold it fast are appointed to life, but such as leave it shall die. And he's referring to exactly, not just Yeshua. I mean, Yeshua is obviously in here. He appeared upon the earth because conversant with men. But he's also talking about how the commandments from the law of God, if you hold fast to them, if you do them, you're pointed to eternal life, to life. But if you don't, you will die. This is exactly what Yeshua is preaching in Matthew 19, 16 and 17. But also this is during the days of Baruch, guys. This is during the days of Jeremiah that this is being spoken of, way before Yeshua showed up on the earth to be conversant with men. This is a prophecy of his coming. It's amazing. And it's the same message that Yeshua was teaching when he came. It's literally word for word. So the reason why I say this is hidden, I'll stop real quick, is because the book of Baruch in our modern days was taken out of the Bible about 140 years ago by men who did not believe in Yeshua, by men who have occultic affiliations. What are occultic affiliations? They're the long-standing practices of the occult and the Kabbalah that comes from ancient Judaism. Who (laughs) Who started ancient Judaism? Who's doing ancient Judaism all this time? It's the Pharisees, how they have transformed into different phases. So this is also the same ideological, theological concepts that they were teaching, that Yeshua reprimanded them for, that became these fundamental um, confusing and non-scriptural principles of Catholic doctrine is the influence of the Pharisees all this time. And I don't. I, that's. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. That's actually a. a whole other video I've I've been working on or researching for to to complete later. But um, but this idea is that even books like Baruch and Ezra, that were in the Bible for some time, that were translated from the Greek. They've been taken out of our Bibles in modern days by people that share the same sentiment and religious rejection of Yeshua. So 140 years ago, you may have read this prophecy about Yeshua and may have been able to easily explain to someone how Yeshua was prophesied to come up on the earth like this and that the commandments of God are for life and for eternal life, just like just like Yeshua taught. Example number six, this is actually not from Irenaeus or Justin Martyr. This is from the Testament of Levi, which was actually found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just like the book of Baruch, that's another book of the Testament of 12 patriarchs that was not put in the hebrew canon in the mesoretic text nor in the in their versions of the septuagint but it was found in uh, greek and aramaic in the in the dead sea scrolls listen to what it says and now i've learned that for 70 weeks you shall go astray and profane the priesthood that's a big deal guys the the pharisees absconded the priesthood during the days of yeshua there the priesthood meant you were the judge and the ruler of the people this is what Korah and his associates were fighting for in Numbers chapter 16, and why they challenged Moses and Aaron. They were trying to get control. The Pharisees absconded the priesthood to get control, and it says and they polluted the sacrifices, and you shall make void the law and set it not the words of the prophets by evil perverseness. This is exactly what Yeshua prophesied or uh, told them in Matthew seven and Mark uh, excuse me Mark seven and Matthew twenty three, where he's he's uh, just tearing up the the Pharisees for their bad teachings and their superseding the the commandments of god by their traditions he goes on to say and you shall persecute righteous men and hate the godly of the word excuse me hate the godly the words of the faithful shall you abhor and your holy places shall be laid waste even to the ground because of him because of who yeshua and you shall have no place that is clean but you shall be among the gentiles a curse and dispersion until he shall again visit you and in pity shall receive you guys is talking about his first and his second coming in two, in like one breath. And he's explaining to them that their holy place is laid waste. We know that happens in AD 70 because of him, because of what, because of the constant infighting rebellions that all the things that were going on politically and religiously near in the 40 years after Yeshua ascended before the Romans came in and just said, we've had enough. And they slaughtered like 500,000 men in Jerusalem and um, men and women, and then uh, dispersed everybody throughout the nations. And here we are today, all this time later. Waiting for his second coming, so and they did that in the exact order that Levi is prophesying. And Levi speaking to his his own descendants in this moment, prophesying about how they will go astray. And then it's just sad. Now, this is something that had this back in the day not been hidden, had it been put into you know from the Greek, put into one of the test of the, um, put into one of the Septuagints back in those days, you'd have had a ton more ammunition to explain to people how Yeshua's first and second coming was prophesied. Let's look at some missing prophecies. Okay. So we're moving into a different phase. This is not just prophecies that have been, that are still out there, that are, that are just hidden, that you have to really dig for, like I've been showing you tonight. This is stuff that you cannot find, literally been ripped out. And the reason why I'm, I, I saved this for this moment to show you that both Irenaeus and Justin Martyr were men who knew what they were talking about when it came to the scriptures as far as the ones they were reading in their in their real presence in that day. And then specifically Irenaeus talking about how he was accurately quoting the scriptures because w- he, he was studied in them. So he says of this in Isaiah, this is an example of a missing prophecy, okay? Isaiah, and this is actually Isaiah 53. Behold, my son shall understand and shall be exalted and glorified greatly. Even as many shall be astonished at you, so without glory shall your form be for men. And many races shall be astonished, and kings shall shut their mouths. For they to whom it was not declared concerning him shall see. And they who have not heard shall consider. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? <laughs> you guys probably remember, recognize that famous passage, right? It's amazing. It's Isaiah 53, 1, as you see down here at the bottom in the Septuagint and the Masoretic, that entire first part of that verse is gone. But Irenaeus is quoting it in the 2nd century AD. How amazing. Literally says, My son shall understand. My son. And uh, Justin Martyr, he quotes it too, but he kind of messes it up a little bit. So he doesn't have as, as accurate as, he says, My servant shall do prudently. He shall be exalted and greatly glorified. So it makes you wonder, which which of the two, two agents is he quoting from? Let's look at another one. Example number two, blessed is he who was before he became a man. We talked about this one earlier, right? Because it literally, you can't find it. Now I paralleled it with Enoch 48, two through six, but at the same time, it's not in the book of Jeremiah, neither in the Septuagint nor the Masoretic, because it's literally been ripped out and its theological implication is definitely um, explained in the New Testament, right? I gave you a minute ago, a parallel from the Old Testament, but look, the New Testament, the idea of a pre-existent Son of God who became incarnate in the flesh, that's explained in 1 Timothy 48, John 17, 3 and 5, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and Revelation 3, 14. So it is something that's addressed in multiple places, but here we would have already seen this addressed by Jeremiah himself if it hadn't been ripped out. Example number three, we see um, Irenaeus attributes something else to Jeremiah that we don't see anymore, and it says, And the Lord, of the Holy One of Israel, remembered his debt, which after time fell asleep in the dust of the earth and he went down unto them to bring the tidings of his salvation to deliver them. And I as you can see right below it Justin Martyr in his writings he also um he claims this as well but he doesn't quote it as accurately um, which is which is interesting but again I think they're both reading off two different septuagint translations. Neither this statement in Jeremiah is not found in the Septuagint or the Masoretic that we have today but they're quoting from it in you know, 130 B.C., or excuse me, 130 A.D. Yet, the theology of what's being spoken, that the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, remembered his dead, which after time fell asleep in the dust of the earth, and he went down to them to bring the tidings of salvation, to deliver them. This is what First Peter 4, 6 is talking about. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Just in case... You ever wondered, like, what, what was he talking about? Well, it would have been explained to us in Jeremiah what Peter was talking about. But that's been ripped out. Because why? Because they don't want him, They don't want the Messiah being someone that is associated with Sheol, with resurrection, with any type of fulfillment of him being in the heart of the earth for three days, like Yeshua said, with the sign of Jonah, meaning he's going to be resurrected. They're trying to hide the Messiah. Number four, this is one that Irenaeus attributes to Isaiah. Who is he that enters into judgment with me? Let him stand against me. Who is he that is justified? Let him draw near to the Lord's Son. Woe unto you, for you shall grow old as a garment, and the moth shall devour you, and all the flesh shall be humbled and abased, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in the highest. Now this is actually part of this we see in Isaiah chapter 58, and we see it both in the Mesoretic and in the KJV. But this part right here which says, draw near to the Lord's Son, that's been ripped out. And all it says is, draw near to me come near to me or draw nigh to me. So the actual literal mention of the Lord's Son, specifically in reference and in context to someone that who's going into judgment and who's wanting to be justified. Well, this, guys, is the doctrine of the purpose of the Messiah. Is that Psalm 12, 7 through 12, right? Do homage to the Son. Yeshua asks of the Father. The Father gives him the nations as his inheritance, and he's the one that rules over them. Psalm 110, 1 through 4, as well as John 5, 22 the father judges no one but all judgment has been given to the son that's what Yeshua tells us reaffirming psalm 2 7 through 12 reaffirming psalm 110 uh, 1 through4 and reaffirming this missing part of isaiah's statement from isaiah 50 verse 8 example number four and those who serve me a new name and those who serve me a new name shall be called which shall be blessed upon the earth and they shall bless the true god Irenaeus is attributing this again to Isaiah in his letters. I can't find this in the Septuagint or the Masoretic, but there is a parallel passage of this idea, of this theological idea, and it's in Revelation 3.12, where, where Yeshua is explaining that he who overcomes will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write in him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. Again, you guys, remember the word name. It's not literally... The letters all the time in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it can and most often does mean authority. It's his authority. Remember, he's made king kings, lord of lords. He's been the high priest who's also a judge and a ruler. It's his authority. He's given the same name that he was given before the stars, moon, and the sun was created. It's his, the authority that he's given. He's got a new authority. Remember what I told you earlier? He was He was made king of heaven before. Now he's made king of heaven and earth. Matthew twenty-eight. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That's his new name. This is exactly what Isaiah. The what we don't have, can't find anymore. That Irenaeus is claiming Isaiah taught. And on those who serve me, a new name shall be called, and which shall be blessed upon the earth. And they shall bless the true God. What did Yeshua tell us in John seventeen, verse three through four and five? Right. That this is the truth. That they would know you, the one true God, and your Son whom you've sent. It's amazing, guys. It's amazing. Example number five. This is. Um, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mismatched slide. Sorry about that. Example number six. Irenaeus attributes this statement to Isaiah. No mediator, no angel, but the Lord Himself saved them, because He loved them and spared them. He Himself redeemed them. Can't find this in the Septuagint or the Masoretic. This is everywhere. I didn't want to put scripture. I uh, like you know. A, uh, parallel theological references because it's literally everywhere in the scriptures is the idea that this is the role of the Messiah, the, the Adonai, the Lord of God, the son of God was sent. John 4, 14 first, excuse me, first John 4, 14. is the one that was sent by the father to be our Messiah, to become this prophesied role of him being our high priest and our King that can make atonement for us up to the almighty God. First Timothy five, first um, Timothy uh, uh, two, five, you know there is one God and one one man who mediates between, or one Lord, which is Jesus, the man who mediates between mankind and God, right? That's the role of our Messiah. That's what he was sent for, and uh, this is is the reason why Isaiah would have to mention there's no mediator, no angel, but the Lord Himself saved them, is because before that, remember, it required a high priest to make atonement. It required an angel to come and do the as it, as we've talked about in great detail three, or four weeks ago in our angel series. Here on milk, milk and meat, the angels were the first priesthood. That's why they were sent out, as Hebrews 1 explains that they're ministering angels sent out to render service to those who are inheriting salvation. That job is not being utilized because the Lord Himself, right, stepped off His throne from heaven to, to be made incarnate into a woman, to live a sinless life, and to be in the spot of being persecuted to death, resurrected as prophesied, so He can become a First fruits of the first resurrection get this incorrupted body that's amazing, glorified, as we read from earlier passages, to be made to sit at the right hand of the Father in place of authority, as Revelation 2, 25-28 explains, in a position of high priest, Hebrews 4.14 and Hebrews 5, 7-10, so that he could mediate atonement for us. This is why Hebrews 1 explains that he has a name, an authority higher than the angels. It's amazing. Truly really amazing. Last one, guys. Example number seven, this is one that actually Justin Martyr attributes to Ezra, like I said before, and this is one that we read. This is just gone. You can't, I can't find this. You guys can't find it, and I made a mistake. Please, please go find it, either in uh, first, second, third, or fourth Ezra's. I can't find it, and he says, and Ezra said to the people, this Passover is our Savior and our refuge, and if you have understood and your heart has taken it in, that we shall humble him on a standard and therefore hope, and thereafter hope in him. Then this place shall not be forsaken forever, says the God of hosts. But if you will not believe in him and will not listen to his declaration, you shall be a laughingstock to the nations. That's not found in either translations. It's not even found in the Greek versions translated in English of Ezra that we have today. So here's Irenaeus again talking about a famous passage that many of us know. This is from Moses, right? What did Yeshua do in Luke 24, 27? He started with Moses, and then he explained to all the prophets who he was from the scriptures. And here is Irenaeus talking about one of those prophecies in Numbers 24. And it says, again, Moses says, There shall arise a star out of Jacob, and a leader shall be raised up out of Israel, showing yet more plainly that the dispensation of his coming in flesh should be among the Jews. Now, this is him explaining, as he just quoted this passage, he's explaining about this passage that he quoted from Numbers 24 to the people reading his letter. And from Jacob in the tribe of Judah, he was born, coming down from heaven, took upon his economy of dispensation. For the star appeared in heaven, and by leader he means king, because he is the king of all the redeemed. And at his birth, the star appeared to the Magi who dwelt in the east, and thereby they learned that Christ was born. And they came to Judea, led by the star, until the star came to Bethlehem where Christ was born, and entered the house wherein was laid the child, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And it stood over his head, declaring to the Magi the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ." Whatever you know, translated word we use for that, right? The, the Messiah. Here's the actual scripture, guys. Because what did it say? And I actually made this for my Enoch debate a while back, uh, but it's hopefully you'll understand the breakdown. Now, this is from the Blue Letter Bible, which has the Septuagint in the Greek on there in the main screen. But look on the left here, and you can see, um, or oh, I'm sorry, look on the look on the top right, and you can see this is the Numbers 24: 17. Um, translation from the the Septuagint into the English. And this is what we see in modern translations of what's actually being translated that we saw Irenaeus speak about. I will point to him, but not now. I'll bless him, but he draws not near. A star shall rise out of Jacob, but man shall spring out of Israel. Well, we see this same concept exemplified um, in Matthew 2, right? The star that they saw in the East. But if we look at the differences in Zechariah 6.12, where a similar, um, a similar prophecy that sounds like Numbers 24 is talking about the branch, and this is the branch both in the Masoretic and the Septuagint, but if you look in the actual Greek in the center of the screen, where I wrote the word east, that's the actual word that they're, the translators are taking upon themselves to say a star shall arise out of Jacob, or the branch, right, out of the east but it should say, instead of the branch, it should say the east. Isn't that crazy? So here is just another example of the Masoretic clearly says the branch, hides the east idea. The Septuagint translation we have today doesn't say the east anymore because most translators translate it as the branch, whereas the actual text itself says the word east. So it's just another another amazing example of, translators over time not not exact, not doing the the um the best with the stewardship of their translation and that is a unfortunately something that you know it takes a keen eye and and you know a mind to study these things but we do have in our in our availability today just like i showed you tonight with these multiple 10 to 12 examples we have gentlemen's writings that are documented from the second century, quoting passages we only find in the Septuagint. We don't find them as read it. verifying their words. And then we've got them in later passages saying words we can't find in either translation, but theologically we can find those ideas throughout the scriptures because it's all the same message. It's all congruent as we talk about here in Kingdom and Context. When you keep it all in context of the gospel of the kingdom of God, you realize it's all the same message. But, that means we've got literal in our hands today, just like I showed you tonight, we can validate their claims from the second century about the, the different the Pharisees injecting themselves into the process of the translations that were being read by the peoples and intentionally taking out passages or changing the translations of passages to hide the Messiah so that it's harder for people to convert. Guys, we've dealt with anti-missionary arguments um, through what we do, um, and we've seen people walk away from the faith because they get anti-missionary arguments thrown at them from the Mesoretic text. They, they, you know, The modern-day um, anti-missionaries who promote Judaism, they have a field day with the Mesoretic text because they they see Yeshua saying one thing, they look in the Old Testament and they can't see him lining up. They think that Yeshua is a false teacher. Same thing with Paul. They did the same thing with him. But if they had the Septuagint, they see like, oh, it's perfectly lined up because that's literally what they were quoting back in the. That's all they had back in those days. They didn't have a full on, um, uh, full on Hebrew New Testament back then. It was all done in Greek for the most part. Same thing with the Old Testament. So there is, uh, there's a lot of. Um, hopefully, there's a lot of. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, there's a lot of hungry people out there that really want to know the scriptures, they really want to know, you know, the truth and they, and they have loved ones who've been caught up in a bad arguments. So hopefully tonight guys, I'm getting you some ammunition to attack some of that stuff. Um, we have one of the questions tonight asking us from blue dove. She's asking, is that when I mentioned earlier, I'm thinking she's referring to the, the Testament of Levi chapter 16, one through five that I was reading where it says, and I learned in the, in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, um, that would not be the daniel prophecy testament of levi says like five to seven different times that that levi got his information from the book of enoch so we don't have all the writings of enoch uh preserved throughout history and i'm and from what i can glean the tw- the jacob and the patriarchs the um, his 12 sons they had what i would suggest would be the fuller writings of enoch we just have like pieces of different fragments put together as the book of first enoch from like six different manuscripts so um, let's see another question real quick. We've got um, another question saying, are you saying that Ezra linked the Passover to the Messiah or do you cite that passage for another reason? Um, I'm not sure about the second part of your question, but the first part of your question, 100%. Yeah, Ezra, just like um, the, the idea of Passover, just like Isaiah talks about the Passover, and Isaiah 33, that he is our Passover, the one who saves us and redeems us, um, because we are passed over in judgment on the day of the Lord and we're resurrected and glorified and brought to the new Jerusalem, our inheritance, and while his wrath passes over us and goes after the wicked. So the fulfillment of Passover is our Messiah, is Yeshua. So that's why in Matthew 26 and in Luke 22, Yeshua explicitly tells us, all of us, listening and reading, and his disciples in the upper room, he tells them that Passover will not be fulfilled until the kingdom of God is manifested, is, is come down to the earth. So that's, yeah. All right, let's look at another question real quick. And let's see here. Another question we have is, is uh, I think it's the same question. Um, yeah, I think it was the same question. So let me go back to the chat and see if anyone else has any questions. Looks like Richard Marriott's asking Wasn't the writings from Enoch written before the flood? Yes. Yeah. They're passed down and great to tell. We're actually going to be going over that in a couple of weeks, about the writings of Enoch and and uh, where he got his information, and um, what they considered as a Bible back in those days. So, um, let me see here. Excited to hear what you got to say on this topic. Okay, Electra, I think Electro, I think you just got here, but you're welcome to rewind to the beginning when you have a chance and and enjoy it. Uh, hopefully, it's it's explain you know good explanations and. You guys have any questions about any of the passages I um, I spoke about, or my biggest thing is is hopefully everyone can walk away with a little bit richer understanding of this idea that there is no perfect translation, guys. Um, we've the Father has preserved His Word throughout time in a variety of different ways to get the message out as as best as possible. Considering all the different languages and all the different persecutions and the wars, and during the you know first and second century before Christ and the first and second century after Christ, there are an entire like that's an entire era of the Greeks that ruled. I remember in you know 300 years before Christ, Alexander conquered everything, and so there a lot of people were starting to speak Greek, you know, and so Greek was a dominant language at the time, and then you had the um, people coming back from Babylon in 500 BC that they, they were speaking a version of Hebrew and Aramaic, which is why you have to have Ezra and Nehemiah literally translating the Torah in the book of Nehemiah. I think it's chapter eight. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's no perfect translation out there. The central message, this is why we don't hang our hat. I got a hat here. We don't hang our hat on one translation. And it's not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's not Syriac, it's not Aramaic, right? It you don't have to do that. It's not the, it doesn't matter what translation it's in. When when the father put came down in the in the Genesis 11 the days of the Tower of Babel, and he confused the, the languages of the nations, everyone went off speaking a different language. That did not stop him from communicating his truth, his message that's been the same since Adam, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The moment that Adam got kicked out of the garden, the gospel of the kingdom of God became extremely relevant to know and understand. The culmination of your obedience and the process that I'm going to enact throughout the ages is going to lead you and all of your descendants who are faithful, who believe, I'll resurrect you bring you back into this garden. I'll bring you back into the paradise, back into my house. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God that Yeshua and all the prophets preached. If we have one little word that's different in this translation or two little words that are different here, even as I showed you tonight, even if you have an entire text that's missing, making it a little bit more difficult to ascertain the, the you know pre-incarnate identity of the Messiah, it does not change the gospel of the kingdom of God. The enemy has been, and I'm going to say this, I'm not trying to you know slander celestial beings or anything like that, but the enemy is not that bright because I, they're not that powerful. So they have not been able, they can do their best to change words here and there. And in, in throughout history, you see mass oppression where they go to the point of killing Christians and trying to stomp out and burn all their scrolls and all their manuscripts. But the, but yet here we are in the 21st century with more Bibles being printed than ever in history and more availability to the word of God than ever in history. And now there's an, a, a new awakening in the last 10 to 15 years of people realizing the older ways. It's the fulfillment of Jubilees 23. They'll return to the path of righteousness and remember the law of God and walk in the ways of the Father once again in fullness, not just in faith and ignorance like we had for many generations, but now coming back to a sense of fullness the best they can. So this is a beautiful prophecy that's Deuteronomy chapter 30, 1 through 4. Um, And the Father is going to come through with his message of the gospel of kingdom in any generation Throughout whatever limited text they have or maligned or altered or perverted text they have, the Father's gonna get his gospel, the kingdom, shout it out to any nation in any generation he wants. And in fact, at the very end, before Yeshua returns, just in case everyone is just accountable and aware so they can repent from their sins, he has an angel fly through the heavens and shouts it to the whole world. <laughs> All right, we have another question real quick, guys. It says, um, Looks like Jibion Kenobi uh, says, what do you say to people who say that God would not allow anything to change his word? I I think I just, before I even read that, I think I just rambled on about that question there. So, um, sorry, I guess that was appropriate. I didn't see your question yet. So good deal. Um, So let me see if there's any other questions that I can see in the chat. Um, It looks like, um, one second, guys. When did he say Baruch was taken out of the Bible? Uh, 1880, I think it's 1881 or 1888 in the 1880s, about 140 years ago. Um, Same with Ezra's and Wisdom of Solomon and a whole bunch of about 14 books removed from, from the American canon of 66. It used to be the American canon of 80 but those were removed. And when you try to look this stuff up, you're going to see that uh, people will say, oh, well, those were just considered deuterocanonical. So those, were, those weren't really scripture. But that word was invented in the 1500s by Martin Luther, who decided to start calling those deuterocanonical. Um, he's not a prophet of God. He doesn't have the authority to do that. And yeah, so they're, they're scripture like anything else, and they were just taken, literally ripped from the Bible in the 1800s. So go research that. I actually have the video on my channel um, it's, it's titled, I was wrong, the Apocrypha in the Bible. And you, and I explained some of the ideas of those words and what they mean and, and uh, a good definition of how to consider these terms when you run into people from seminary or you run into people from Judaism that try to downplay some of these prophets books so that you don't read them uh, because they do it all the time. They don't want you to know the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. So, all right, let me see here. It looks like we have Looks like we have a question from David saying, did Sean cover the questions I post in the chat? Sorry to split attention. I'm not sure, David. Um, if you post them in the chat above, I'm scrolling through to see, looks like I see one. It says, JC Light is asking, do you have a teaching where you go through how they canonize the scripture, both old and new covenants? Uh, no, I don't. I've talked about it in pieces throughout many different scriptures. I don't have a specific video. Um, I meant to say videos. In many videos I've talked about it in pieces, I don't have a specific breakdown. But it's common information. I I should say it's common if you're looking for it. It's not impossibly hard to find. There are a lot of ministries that you could research that have publications and videos to show you the process of canonization. But ultimately, I want you to remember: canons are made by men. These are not canons are not an angel showing up and saying, "Put these books in a in a binding and call it the Bible." No, it's just a bunch of dudes sitting around saying, well, you like this book? You like that book? I think this book is good. And this other guy across the table is like, I don't think that book's good. So then they have to figure out how to compromise. It's crazy. If you start researching the history of the canons, you'll see there was a, a council put together in, um, in the second century, just the same time period we've been talking about tonight. There was a council put together that they wanted to include a whole bunch of books um, except for James and Revelation. And then two hundred years later, there's another canonization council that came together, and they wanted to put back in Revelation and James. And you're like, what happened? In two hundred years, what what, ha- what changed? It's it's wild. What what the answer is? It's just men. These are just men who they want to include books according to their understanding, not according to literally. Whether they are, you know, that God spoke from heaven or sent an angel to tell them these are these books are the ones people should read and study by. Like that's yeah, don't you're when we put too much effort on the canonization, we put too much faith in the authority of men and not um, reading them for ourselves and holding them to the Deuteronomy 13 test, which is what our creator asks us to do. So um, let me see here. I'm seeing see other questions popping up. Uh, I think Jody Nichols said my volume keeps going off. I apologize. I'm not sure how to change that or fix it. My mic is showing uh, proper output readings. So uh, let me see here. hope everyone's doing well tonight and getting ready to have a good Shabbat. Thanks, Richard. Uh, Richard Marriott. I appreciate it, brother. Um, I feel blessed to be able to bring this stuff to you, man. This is stuff I wish I'd have been shown or... I wish I could have learned 20 years ago, you know, when I first started studying the Bible to give me some perspective, some context of these ideas and things. Um, but what what you see though in seminary is that you see a, lo- a level of intimidation of people that think, because that's what they've been intimidated to think they will read people like just, well, not just a martyr. Cause again, I don't agree with his theology. His historical perspective is accurate, but his theology, he needed to be taught better. Irenaeus, he's, teaching the commandments of god right he's teaching you to keep the commandments of god and if you have someone in seminary that would have pulled up the letters of irenaeus they don't like to talk about him that much right they like to talk about god, the early church fathers that were a couple hundred years later right like origen um, and other guys that that taught against the practices and rights of the jews right so it's um that's where you just have to dig into people's arguments and see where how are they forming their arguments even the most well-known and highly respected people that are considered, you know, teachers of the word and professors with PhDs, they all were taught a way of thinking. So what you're seeing tonight is 20 years of me hearing what other people are saying and and going, okay, well, let me prove it for myself, right? Let Let me dig into where they came to that conclusion and find it myself. And let me internally, not with strife and contention, but internally, let me try to challenge what they're telling me. So then I can, if I can come to the same conclusion, then that's something, not something to consider, right? That's a teaching you might want to hold on to. But if I can't come to the same conclusion and I'm seeing a mountain of evidence leading elsewhere, then I have to, I have to ask myself, why are they coming to that conclusion, right? If they're trying to tell me that the law is done away with, which I've got the entirety of the Bible, plus two generations after the disciples telling me that the law is not done away with, that it's fully applicable for our discipleship and that you need to do it the best you can because it's literally the definition of how you love and walk with God. So why would I listen to this guy in the 20th, 20th century or the 21st century tell me the law is done away with and I don't have to worry about it. Now I just love Jesus. He's, he's given me platitudes. He's not given me definitions. And he, someone told him to say that. He learned that phraseology from somebody else. And that's how bad doctrine is repeated generationally and gets passed on. Even even amongst the most well-intended men, men with incredible hearts, men who desire to know God, yes, but that's, this is the deception of bad teaching. So this is just one of the underlying motivated reasons why we start our channel and why we present all this nerdy information like we do. <laughs> all right, let me jump in the chat here. Um, all right, guys. Uh, Admins, I'm going to look through the question. If you have any more questions that you all saw, please let me know. Otherwise, thank you guys for being here tonight. Admins, I really appreciate you helping me with this. Um, OK, it uh, looks like Catherine launched. it's her first time here, so thanks. Yeah, I hope it was good. This one's a little bit more like historical than when we sometimes we just do all scriptures, you know, but um, that's our goal is we want to teach Scripture from Scripture, not from, you know, our opinions. But sometimes you do have to understand the timeline of things, the historical value. So, again, that's why we have on our context tree, um, one of the branches on our context tree is timelines. And so that's why we, we address the topic of timelines tonight and how things came together and where these statements came from in Scripture. All right, so... Yeah, if you guys haven't already hit the like button um, and this is if you're enjoying this broadcast tonight, if you think it's beneficial to you, please share it on social media. It helps get the word out. Not because, you know, clearly we're a small channel. It's not because, guys, I have vain, fancy dreams of growing to a big YouTube channel. It's because we are the whole purpose of social media is that you get to interact in social circles. And you have a choice when you're doing that all day, right? Because you get to reach people all across the world or all across the country or even all across your city or state that you couldn't normally reach in your daily life, just going around your town, doing your job or whatever, going to the grocery store, the post office, right? So social media is an incredible tool. You can go out and you can reach people all over the country and over the world with a message. And the question is, what's your message? What do you want to be about? What do you want to talk to them about? What do you want to see other people talking? What do you want other people to see you talking about? from all over the world. Well, social media gives that opportunity. And my wife and I decided we want to encourage people, help them grow in the word. And our goal is to spread a contextual based understanding of the words so they can have clarity. And we use social media for that. So if if this presentation tonight blessed you, please share it on social media. Um, it, it's not so that we can grow a big channel. That's going to just come over time. That's just a natural thing. but we truly want to bless people with this because we see so many confused and hurting people out there who are leaving the mainstream churches because they're not getting solid foundational contextual teachings. They're, they're coming to their pastors with questions and saying the verse is ABC. And then the pastor turns around and says, I know it looks like ABC, but really it's X, Y, Z. And people are just confused and they're walking away from the church and it's a huge blow to their faith We hope to step into that gap and say, look, here's the context of scripture. Be built up in your faith. Be edified. Walk in strength. Know the Lord. Do his behavior. Be excited about the hope of your resurrection that Paul called the hope of glory. And enjoy your life. You know, this is the, enjoy your faith while you're not persecuted. Like just, this is our goal is to help people have a better quality relationship with the father. So yeah, just consider sharing the video if you like it. Um, let me see if I can see any other questions. Hope everyone's doing good tonight. And put any questions in the chat and also in the comments. So if you're watching this video later and the live chat's already over, put your questions in the comments. I'm going to do my best to try to get to them. Guys, I just want to make a blanket um, warning, I should say. Over the past few weeks, we've had a lot of people coming to us trying to present anti-Poll arguments. so. If you're going to do that on my channel, I will be removing you because we have taught against that emphatically. We've explained and there's there's a lot of resources out there to answer those questions. We've answered a ton of those questions from scripture with many different videos. Uh, I have an entire Galatians series that it helps you understand Paul taught Torah and was validated according to Jeremy 13. Um, but we still have people come to our channel with accusations against a prophet sent by the Father, the Apostle Paul. So, we're, you know, we just had to come to an executive decision. We cannot allow that to continue to persist on our channel. There's too many people reading the comments, trying to learn stuff, and I don't want them swayed by bad information that has easy answers to it, but the people don't want the answers. They just want to continue to accuse someone, and that's the spirit that I've seen of this. So with all love and respect, if you come to my channel to do that, I'll be removing you, and um, I'll be removing your comments because I don't want you spreading false doctrines like that to to my audience my viewers and if you persist i'll have to block you from the channel because you can't behave yourself so just i just want to lovingly throw that out there okay uh looks like we have uh, the great deceptions here tonight good to see you thanks for joining us again shabbat shalom chris howard's here shabbat shalom thanks for joining us um david shearer i'm not sure oh you're sharing a okay i think you're sharing us a uh a recent video I did to somebody. Yes, Kelly, Kelly J, you're exactly right. It is slander. That's why we're not going to put up with it on our channel. Um, there's one. It's one thing to argue against something. It's another thing is when you you're not even you're ignoring the words and just making up baseless accusations. Um, you, you're literally falling prey to slander. It's Deuteronomy 19. I think it's verses like 17 through 21. You, it's literally in, if we lived back in the day in ancient Israel, and we had to answer to the judges because you know we're in covenant with the Father and we're doing the behavior of the commandments, and these this this group of people out there that are slandering Paul, they would literally be brought before the judges and they would be put to death because Paul can be venerated from Scripture in a hundred different ways, that he's not a false apostle, and he's not a false prophet. So therefore, their accusation becomes slander, and they receive the punishment that was intended if the accusation was true. And to call someone a false prophet, it's a death penalty. You see how that works? If you guys aren't familiar, go read Deuteronomy 19. It's very serious. So two, three weeks ago, we were trying to just address the arguments and be be chill about it. But I keep getting people come to my channel and message my inbox and social media, continuing to spread nonsense and slander about prophets that the father has sent us to explain his word and to be a benefit to the body. And I'm just not going to put up with it anymore. There, I'll just, you will be removed. So, um, I was down is here. Welcome. Good to see you. Um, any other questions, Stephen Belk, welcome. Good to see you. Yeah. I, I appreciate you. Thanks for the kind words. Um, Hopefully it has been a strength to you. Pixie from Dixie. That's a fun name. Do you think the gospel has gone to the whole world? No. In fact, if we look at Matthew 24, it's actually a pretty interesting statement that Yeshua explains when he talks about that. Um, As always, we're trying to help people look at the context. Um, But I'm going to screen share real quick for you. And let's look at Matthew 24 together, okay? And this is a moment where He's about to actually, you know, he's talking about end time persecution, stuff that will, you know, tribulation so great that no one's ever experienced anything like it, which is why I don't think we've ever, we're not there yet. Right. But in verse nine through 14 in Matthew 24, he says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all the nations for my name's sake. And then you shall, many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. Guys, focus in. This gospel of the kingdom. Guys, I've done in my first two videos on this channel. Go, go watch my New Beginners playlist. My first two videos was about Yeshua's gospel of the kingdom and how he preaches it everywhere, all throughout Scripture. It is... Um, the central message of all the prophets is the gospel of the kingdom. And right now, especially in America and many, in many states that America's evangelized in the last hundred years, or excuse me, many countries America has evangelized in the last hundred years. They're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom in its fullness. All they're preaching about is the king of the kingdom. They're preaching about repent, believe in Yeshua, forgiveness of sins, go to heaven, right? They're, they're preaching that core message. Most missionaries about the king of the kingdom. And that's wonderful. Hallelujah, thank you for that. They put their life on the line to go do that. May the Father bless them. But the gospel the kingdom that Yeshua preached about is the kingdom come, is the new Jerusalem itself. The Garden of Eden enhanced and made bigger, turned into the new Jerusalem, the paradise of God that Paul talked about is currently in the third layer of the firmament in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse one through three that we see come down out of heaven in Revelation 21, one through three and then nine through 10. This is the kingdom of God literally coming down to the ground. This is Isaiah 37. It is a beautiful moment. It only happens after the day of the Lord, after Yeshua comes back and takes the wicked out and resurrects the saints. So this gospel of the kingdom, that central big message is what we focus on here on this channel. And it's not what the mainstream churches are talking about right now. So we feel like a, a, you know, small drops in a big ocean, to be honest with you and we that's why i've kind of think that we've you know there's a reason why biblical cosmology has made a resurgence in the past five or six years because it leads people to the gospel of the kingdom they start to realize they're not on a ball in space that the scriptures describe you're in a big container that the father made with multiple levels and you live on a specific level designed just for you and he's bringing this huge house of his down to our level in the future when he comes to route the wicked out of the earth and it's and it's going to be, it's, it's a beautiful message. You guys, it's all part of the gospel, the kingdom. The same thing with the resurgence in the last 20 to 30 years of Torah observance amongst believers, because that is the behavior of the kingdom. So there's been a lot of deception perpetrated on the body of believers over the last 2000 years, as I've shown you tonight. And this message of the kingdom that will go to all the world and then the end will come is still emerging in its fullness right now in our generation. And we're just doing our small part to, you know, to get the word out because it's it's the type of message the enemy's been trying to suppress for 2,000 years. Um, all right, let me check the chat again and see about some other questions. Looks like we have Chris Howard is asking, Were the scrolls that Yeshua read out of, were they in Hebrew or Greek, and how would we know? Um, that's what I i don't know if you saw the first part of this presentation tonight, Chris, but that's what I just tried to show you with a bunch of examples, was that they were all reading out the Greek Septuagint, and this is where, if you have a modern Septuagint, you can go to many of the things that Yeshua is quoting. You can go to those passages in the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint, and you'll see they align almost word for word and much better than the Hebrew Masoretic. So that's... Um, yeah, he had the Greek, and that's how you can know. And I showed you how you can know in the first forty-five minutes of this presentation tonight. So let's look at another question real quick from Ms. Blue Dove. Says, "What happened to the people that were saying that the new version was tampered with?" What? So what happened to the people that were saying that the new version was tampered with? I'm not. I'm not sure uh, what context you're asking about. I'm not sure what version you're asking about. What people? So I apologize, Ms. Blue Doves. If you if you want to reword your question with a more specificity, I can actually answer it but uh, I'm not sure. So let's see. All right. Let's look at. Thanks. All right, let's try this again. All right, so Miss Blue Devs is asking like Irenaeus, he was saying to the Jews, they took out these texts. What came of the argument? Now I think you're referring to Justin Martyr was talking to the gen- the Jewish gentleman in his city and that they had taken out the text. What became of it? That the whole thing of what I'm talking about is what became of it. They, they were making three new translations of the Septuagint in the second century. So they already had a translation of the Septuagint, which was the Greek Old Testament. They already had that for 300 years. And then the second century, A.D., the Pharisees um, commissioned their own version, and then a couple Ebionite guys made their own version, and the Pharisees used some of those new versions of all three of those to go, and that's what later um, Jerome used for the Vulgate, but those, what became of those is you had four different versions of the Septuagint, all of them 99.9% the same with minor variations like I was showing you tonight, and those minor variations were to hide Yeshua to make it more difficult for believers. Because remember, this was mass persecution of those who followed the way, those who followed Yeshua. So that's that's um, that's what became of it. Is That means for the next couple hundred years, all the new believers, if they weren't being killed by Rome or they weren't reading little pieces of Paul's letters being spread around, and they actually had access to full-on Old Testament, then they were reading Greek Septuagint and, and four different types of translations. So hopefully that answers your question. All right, guys. Well, I really appreciate everyone being here. Um, look okay, at Micah 6'8", Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. Thank you, brother. Good to see you here. And, uh, I think everyone is, um, I don't, I don't see any, any other questions for the time being. So thank you all for being here, guys. I'm going to sign off and, and go rest and, um, All right, I just want to remind everybody, both in the comments and in the chat, we don't want to, we want to do our best um, not to talk about other ministries. This is a rule that we have for our online social media groups as well. Um, and if you guys aren't a part of that, go check us out. By the way, come find us on Facebook, join our social media groups. We'll keep them in context backslash hanging on his truth. The link should be in the description of this video and you um, come join us. You can ask more questions throughout the week and in there in fellowship. And we, you know, people post funny stuff and talk about scripture. It's more of a study group, okay? It's not really a current events group. We really like to study the Bible. But come find us and join that if you want. But one of our rules for that, that we try to uphold also on the comment sections on YouTube, as well as our live chat, is that we don't want to talk about other ministers or ministries. But clearly, there's lots of ministries out there that teach different doctrines that we don't teach here on Kingdom of Context. We want to do our best to address the arguments and not the Teachers, right? Address the teachings and not the teacher. That way we don't fall into slander, okay? Because slander is when you re- misrepresent what someone is saying or espousing. So if that just is an easy, easy little way for you to just stick to the point of what's the bad argument and no, don't turn into the bad guy attacking another person. Does that make sense? So thank you, uh, moderators, for continuing to uh, watch out for that in the chat so all right guys appreciate you in the live stream thanks for everyone for joining us and we hope to uh see you back here next week on milk and meats here on caving with context i hope everyone has a